Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. If we haven't met before, my name is Joe and I'm one of the leaders here. And today we're going to be continuing our Bible study in the book of Genesis. And so if you brought a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, underneath the seat around you is a hardback black Bible. You can turn to page 17. We'll also throw the words up on the screen if you want to look at it there. But let us get caught up on the story first before we jump right in. Because we missed the last week in Genesis because of Easter. Happy Easter. Jesus is alive. We're excited about that and still celebrating it today. And maybe some of you haven't been with us before to, to hear about where we've gotten to in the book of Genesis. So to give you the Cliff's Notes version of what has happened, there was a man named Abraham who lived in a land that we now call Iraq. And God spoke to him while he was there and said, I want you to travel to a new land. And so he takes him to this new place, a land that we now call Israel. And while he's in this new land, Israel, God speaks to him and says, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. Your descendants are going to rule in this land as a great nation. And this is all well and good and sounds wonderful to Abraham, except there's just one problem with that. Abraham has no children. In fact, he and his wife, Sarah, are well into their 70s at this point. And God promises to him, your descendants are going to own this land. They're going to rule in this land one day. Now, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but if we do the math, and these people who are well into their 70s have no child, it's impossible that their descendants would own this land. Eventually, a miracle occurs. Sarah gives birth to a son at 90 years old, and they name this child Isaac. And now it looks as though the promise that God made to Abraham is beginning to be fulfilled. He has a son. He has a descendant from whom many more descendants can come and eventually fulfill the promise that God made, that your descendants will rule in this land. Except many years go by, 40 years in fact go by, and Isaac is still childless. He's not even married yet. And at this point, Abraham is so old that he's bedridden, and he is worried that if, if Isaac dies without children, the promise God made to me so many years ago dies with him. And it isn't just Abraham's posterity that's at stake, though it is, and that's all he could see. But if Abraham doesn't have descendants who, who rule in that land, then eventually Jesus is never born. And if Jesus is never born, then we are still stuck in our sins because he never comes to rescue us from them. And so it isn't just 
Abraham's posterity at stake. It's the fate of the world hanging in the balance, all because of Isaac's bachelorhood. (laughs) And this catches us up to where we are in the story today. Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but that you will go to my country and to my kindred, And take a wife for my son Isaac from there. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. And you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back to that land. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, the the story is contained in the rest of this chapter, which is 67 verses long. And for the sake of time and our attention spans, I'm not going to read the rest of that, but we will talk about the story. But before we do that, I'd like for us to pray together. So would you pray with me? Lord, we, we are so thankful for the Bible. We're so thankful for the truths contained in it, for the, for the life that it gives us, for the hope that it gives us, for the, for the understanding that it gives us about who you are. I pray today as we, as we learn about who you are that you would use that knowledge that we gain to be more than knowledge that's placed in our minds, but that you would use it to change us. And Lord, I pray that you would change us with it so profoundly that, that the effect would change others around us as well through your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would lead us and guide us today in our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. When studying the Bible, it's important to understand that there is a a meaning and particular purpose in every story, in every passage. And this meaning and purpose that exists in every passage in the Bible is static, and it's unchanging. It means what it means, and it cannot mean anything else than that. A professor I know used to say to me all the time, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. That's a good thing for us to know and repeat to ourselves when reading the Bible. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And what that means is it can never mean anything for you and I that it didn't mean for the original audience who read who it was written to. Now, the difficulty in that is that there are many things in the Bible that are hard to understand. Would you agree with that? And maybe you've read the Bible and you've wondered why you, why you can't understand it and why it feels like we've been dropped into the middle of a conversation that we've not been given all the details about. Like Abraham saying, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me. I'll stick to my pinky swears, thank you very much, Abraham. I, I, I'm not going to do the under thigh thing, whatever that is. 
but we don't understand what that means. In fact, most commentators have no idea what that means. But Abraham did, and his servant knew what it meant, and the people that that was originally written to understood what that meant. And because there was an understanding that the people who would originally read it knew what it meant, they weren't thinking about what 21st century Americans would think about an underhand thigh swear. They didn't care because we weren't on their radar. It's kind of like this. If, if you were to overhear me having a conversation with someone and, and you hear me say, the party starts at six. If you had no context to what party I was talking about, if you didn't, didn't know where the party was, if you didn't know what the party was for, you might not know what to wear to the party. You might not know what to bring to the party. You might not know if you should show up early. You might not know if family's going to be there, and you probably want to show up fashionably late then. If you don't understand the context of the sentence, you won't know what the party is about. And, And because you don't understand the context, you would never assume, and you would never try to figure out what it was and interject your own ideas and opinions into it. We would never do that. It's, it's not only rude and socially unacceptable, but it could be quite embarrassing for you to assume on a conversation that you don't have all of the context to understand what's really going on. The unfortunate thing is that we do that to the Bible all the time because there are many things in it that we don't understand. And so we interject our own ideas and our own opinions into what the text is saying, and we neglect what the actual meaning could be, and in doing so, rob ourselves of what God would want to show us through what the pages of the Bible have to say. Now, because the Bible can be difficult to understand, a few things can happen. We have a few different options we can take. One of those options is to say, because I can't understand the Bible, since it's difficult to understand, it must have no meaning for my life. Maybe some of you here have said that before. I can't understand the Bible, so it's worthless to me. The only problem with that argument is that we don't apply that to other areas of our life. You explain to me how your phone can also be a computer and a TV and a GPS and a remote for the thermostat. You explain to me how that really works. And if you can't, then you would have to say it's useless for your life, right? Of course not. We don't do that in other areas of our life. So why would we do that with the Bible? That idea falls apart. Another option we have is to say, if I can't understand the Bible, there must be some hidden meaning in in its words. The problem with there being hidden meaning in in the words is, is that who really knows who is right when they say they've discovered the actual meaning? And if I have discovered the hidden meaning, does that make me special? Does that give me more knowledge than the rest of you? Or what if I don't understand the hidden meaning? Does that make me less special than the rest of you? That falls apart as well because the Bible tells us God doesn't respect any person over another. He doesn't hide his truths from us. He wants us to understand. So I think the only viable option when we have difficulty in understanding the Bible is just to accept there are some things we are not going to understand, like the under thigh swear thing. And I can tell you that there are things that we don't understand that if, if we don't know about them, it's not going to affect our faith at all. That not knowing about that thigh thing doesn't change my faith in God at all. In fact, I don't know that it would help it if I did discover it. There are, there are things that we're just not going to get, and that has to be okay. We have to be okay with that. But there are very important things in the Bible that God does want us to understand. And because every passage of the Bible has a meaning and a purpose, 
we can seek that meaning and purpose out and see what God would want us to know. And I intend for us to do that today. But before we do that, let's read on a little bit. It says in verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, put your hand under my thigh, that whole weird thing, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites. He says, I want you to swear by the Lord that you're going to do this. I want you to make an oath to God. I want you to realize that this is a serious matter before you. It's not the same as when you decide what camel to buy for me, servant. This is something that we have to go before God with. There are some moments in life that are, that are just, they, they seem to be special. And, and maybe you might even say they seem to be holy. Perhaps you've even looked back at moments in your life and said, that was definitely a God thing, what was happening there. there. There are moments in our lives where God wants to arrest our faculties, grab our attention, and say, look, you need me with this one. It's not the same as choosing what to wear. It's not the same as choosing, do I get mozzarella sticks or the cactus blossom? It is asking God to be involved in what you're doing because you need his help to accomplish it. And Abraham says to his servant, swear by the Lord, you're going to need him in this, buddy. This is a big deal to me. This is important. The fate of my family is hanging in the balance, and we know the fate of the world hanging in the balance. He goes on to say, go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. I said I won't read the entire story, and I would encourage you to go and do that, finish this chapter out. But to give you the long and the short of it, he travels, this servant travels to Abraham's original homeland. And on the way, he asks God for certain signs to, to be able to find this wife for Isaac. And he asks God to lead him to this wife for Isaac. And when he gets there, he meets a young woman named Rebecca. And, and Rebecca takes him to her family. And after conversing with her and her family, he realizes this is the one that Isaac is to marry. And so he takes her back to Abraham. She agrees to go with him. And they go back and she marries Isaac. Now, many have looked at this story and said this is a perfect prescription from the Bible for how God ordains marriages. This is, this is how God sets up marriages for people. He's orchestrating things around, and we do nothing. We, we involve ourselves in no way, and he brings us a spouse. And, and if the, every passage of the Bible has a meaning and a purpose, I would say I disagree with that meaning and purpose for this passage of the Bible. Now, obviously, we can see that, that God takes great care in our most intimate moments and desires. He, he wants to be involved in those things, but this passage is not a prescription for marriage. And I want to get on briefly to what I believe the meaning of the passage is about. But since we're talking about marriage, let's take a moment and rest here. Because there's an idea within the church that would say the ultimate goal of every person's life is to find a spouse and get married. In fact, so much so, it's often treated as though a person's incomplete until they're married. And single people, we're, we're sometimes made to feel like God can't use us until we've been married, or that, or that we don't really understand God's love until we've been married. 
And, and I say all this to, to hopefully encourage those of us in the room who are still single and would like to be married one day, that there's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing abnormal about being single. In fact, it's a very biblical thing to be single. Isaac is 40 years old and unmarried. The Apostle Paul, the man responsible for writing much, most of the New Testament, and the father of all Christian theology, never married. We're not abnormal. I spent all of my 20s longing and hoping and wanting and waiting to find the perfect woman. And when I realized that either she doesn't exist <laughs> or someone's already taken her, I began to be a little hopeless, but, but now I'm learning to realize that, that in, instead of looking at my singleness as a burden, I can see it actually as a gift from God, much like those of you who are married would look at your spouse as a gift from God. What I've, what I've missed in longing to be married was the myriad of opportunities that await me because I am single. I can stay out as late as I want, guys. <laughs> I get to pick where I eat. I have no one stopping me in the morning to say, you're really going to wear that? Some of you are thinking, it's obvious no one stops you in the morning to say that, Joe. But, but this is true. I, I have every opportunity that I want to and that I believe the Lord would want me to, to, to spend serving the church. I have every opportunity that I want to have to give my time away because I don't have a wife and kids who deserve it more than other people do. There are plenty of opportunities before us who are single. Don't get me wrong. I want to be married someday, ladies. But, <laughs> but, but in the meantime, I refuse to feel like I'm incomplete until I get married. No one's purpose in life is to get married. No one's purpose in life is to be a parent. Some of you need to hear that. Your purpose in life is not to be a parent. Our purpose in life is to become like Jesus. And marriage is a tool that he uses to get us there. Parenthood is a tool that he uses to get us there. Singleness is a tool that he uses to get us there. And singleness is is no less useful of a tool than marriage or parenthood in making us like Jesus. The reality is that there are many people who will be single for the rest of their life, and that is okay. It just wasn't okay for Isaac. Because if he's single for the rest of his life, we have no hope in Jesus. We are still stuck in our sins because God promised that Abraham would have descendants from whom the Savior of the world, would come. And so God orchestrates this plan to, to bring Abraham's servant into this land and find a wife for Isaac. And he takes Rebekah back to Isaac and they eventually get married and have a son. And what I believe the purpose of this passage is showing us is that God takes very special care in orchestrating the events of our lives in order to preserve his purposes in his people. He puts his hands on our lives so that he can preserve what he's wanting to do for us. And we see him doing that here. And we see him using Abraham's servant to preserve that promise that he'd given to him.
And we see him doing it today through his servants that we call the church, each other. See, God preserves his people, his church today, much in the same way he was preserving his people in the loins of Isaac through using other people to help accomplish that purpose. He wants to use each of us as as members of his church, as, as, as people who are part of his family to help one another and to encourage one another and to love one another. He wants to accomplish his purposes in the world through us. That is huge. That is mind-blowing. It is baffling. And he wants to provide care for his church by using his very church to do that. Now, very often in the American culture, in, in, in the way we do church, we, we very often get the mindset that, that the church exists as a place for me to come on Sundays or perhaps attend a small group during the week, or a Bible study during the week, that it exists as a place for me to come and get refreshed and refueled. And that is true, and I hope that that is the case for you. But if that is all we see the church for, and if everyone had that mentality, that the only purpose of the church is that we come together and get refueled and refreshed and fed, then no one is doing the feeding. No one is doing the fueling. No one is helping others if we've all got the mindset, I'm going to go and get filled up. I'm going to go and get help there. Don't get me wrong. The church is a place for that. But we must have the mindset that I have to come with something I can give to other people and expect that they will give to me as well. And it could be as simple as maybe you say hello to the person sitting next to you that you've never talked to before, but you've sat next to them 50 times and you don't even know their name. They have a story and maybe they have something that you need and maybe you have something that they need. But, but we can look for opportunities all around us to serve one another and to love one another as God has ordained it, as God desires it for us. He wants us to care for each other and to preserve one another through our love for each other. I got here early this morning and the band was here early as well. And some of them were praying in the prayer room out in the gallery. And as they're praying for each other, I'm, I'm hearing a little bit of, of what some of them are going through. And, 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 and we couldn't even imagine, and you wouldn't know with as well as they do, that, that they, they, like all of us, actually have issues that are happening in their lives, some of which are very serious and distressing to them. And I hear them praying for one another and encouraging one another and saying, I'm going to give you what I can give you to help you because I know I'm going to receive something from you as well. For to learn anything from this story and find an example from Abraham's servant, it's that he selfishly, selflessly obeyed his master Abraham and went to that land to find a wife for Isaac. We can look at Isaac's life and see an example of what not to do because he's 40 years old and is not even trying. In fact, the Bible tells us that he's sulking If we go on and look in verse 63, 
It says, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. This is when the servant is bringing Rebekah to him. He's meditating in the field. In the original language, that word meditate comes with it, the idea that he's out on a lonely stroll because he's sad and wallowing in his misery about life. And that's keeping him from helping to further what God wants to do on the earth. You see, his mother had passed away three years prior to that. And we learn at the end of this chapter that he's not comforted, he's not encouraged until he finds his wife, Rebecca, until he gets married. And then it says he's comforted after the death of his mother, Sarah. But that event that happened to him has kept him from following what God would want him to do. And I wonder how many of us are so hung up on something that happened years ago that we refuse to get up and do anything that God would want us to do because we're still hurt and we're still wounded and we can't get over it. And we refuse to move and all the while we watch God's purpose die because we can't do what he would want us to do. We know that eventually they get married. They have a son named Jacob. This Jacob has 12 sons who become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 tribes of Israel grow into this great nation that God promised to Abraham. And, and a millennia and a half later, a baby is born miraculously. His parents name him Jesus. Jesus grows up and lives a perfect life, and, and he eventually is executed. He's hung on a Roman cross, and he's killed for the sins of the world. He's killed for our misdeeds. He's killed for our mistakes. He's killed to heal us of all of our woundedness. He's wounded in our place. And three days later, he rises from the dead victoriously. We celebrated that last week. And just to remind us, we never stop celebrating the fact that Jesus is alive. But the evening before his execution, he's sharing a meal with his closest friends. And he takes a loaf of bread and he, and he breaks this loaf of bread and he passes it around. And he says, this bread represents my body that's going to be broken for you that's going to be beaten and bruised and nailed to a cross. This bread that I'm breaking in my hands represents my body. And he's speaking of his crucifixion that is about to happen. And every month we commemorate this moment. We, we call it communion. And, and today is that day that we're going to do that when we take communion. And, and pretty soon some friends will be passing some crackers and juice to you to, to commemorate that bread and, and the wine that he shared with his friends on that day. And when we hear him say, this is my body broken for you, we know that he's talking about his death that is coming very soon, the next day. But when I hear, when I read him say, this is my body broken for you, I, I think about the other thing in the Bible that's called the body of Christ. And it's not just his physical body that was wounded, but he also refers to the church as his body. The church is called the body of Christ. And when I read Jesus say, this is my body broken for you, I imagine him taking each one of us as members of his body and, and squeezing some things out of us so that we can refresh other people. 
breaking us in ways, if you will, so, so that the things that we learn from that can help others. Pouring us out and exhausting our energies so that other people might be fed and nourished and given life. When I read of Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you, I say, yes, Lord, you can break me for your purposes. And we don't have to be afraid of what that looks like because when Jesus' body was broken, he didn't stay broken in the grave. He walked out of it. And if that same resurrection power lives in us, and I believe it does, when he uses us and exhausts us and wearies us to serve other people, we can be assured that we too will be given new life and we don't stay broken. But his desire is that he can take us and do with us as he wills, much like Abraham's servant was so willing to say, I'll do whatever my master wants for the purpose of feeding and nourishing and preserving his church. It's my prayer that we would all understand that, that we exist for one another. We become like Jesus when we serve and love one another, and he wants to make us more like him, and he'll do that by using each one of us to help the other one become more like him. I mentioned that today is Communion Sunday, and, and very soon uh, my friend Steve is going to come and lead us in taking communion together. And when he does, listen closely because he's going to share with us what that meant for Jesus' body to be broken. And I pray that, that as we take communion together today, we would, we would see the sobriety in that moment, but not stay there, but that we would rejoice because there's life on the other side of it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that, that you gave your body for us. We are so thankful that you gave your life, that you allowed yourself to be broken open, that you allowed yourself to be harmed for our sake. Lord, I pray that, that, we, that we would join with you in that purpose of serving others, no matter what it takes from us, knowing that there's a promise of life from you knowing that you don't leave us broken, knowing that you, that, you don't, that you don't keep us down and out, but that you invigorate us with the truth of your love and the power of your resurrection. For that, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicator.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.